Welcome to today's podcast, sponsored by Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. I encourage you to take advantage of the many free online courses there. And, of course, to listen to the Hillsdale Dialogues, all of them at Q for hillsdale.com, or just Google Apple, iTunes, and Hillsdale. But it's not so great of a morning on this Monday, December the 4th, in the year of our Lord, 2023. An anti-Semitic mob, basically a non-lethal pogrom last night in the streets of Philadelphia, aimed at a restaurant owned by a Jewish American, who I believe is also an Israeli citizen, so it might be a joint citizen. But the owner of Goldie's isn't actually named Goldie. I'm not going to tell you his name. But a group of uh, pro-Hamas demonstrators led basically a mob outside of Goldie's threatening patrons, threatening the restaurant, threatening the owner, denounced this morning by Josh Shapiro, the governor of Pennsylvania, by Dave McCormick, the next senator in Pennsylvania, who's going to beat the invisible Bob Casey, who's nowhere to be seen anywhere ever. But this isn't the only anti-Semitic act in America. There are dozens and scores and hundreds of them going on. Did you see this anywhere this morning? Look at the platform you use for your news. I use the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal here in the United States. None of them have a story. Now, it happened later than most people like to work on a Sunday night. Uh, happened after 6 p.m. The Eagles game was on, <clears throat> so maybe everybody was watching the Eagles game. The Browns lost to the Rams last night, and so maybe they were watching the Browns game. I don't think so. But those are the two late games, so maybe they were watching the games. Every reporter in America can't cover a pogrom that's not lethal. Now, there ha- I think what's actually the problem is that major media is anti-Israel. Legacy media is anti-Israel. And they know that we've got anti-Palestinian violence in the United States, which is awful, and which I've covered. The little boy who was murdered in Chicago, his mother was knifed at the same time. The three Palestinian students, at least two of them, I think, are Palestinian-Americans, who were shot by a nut in Burlington, Vermont. So we have five victims of anti-Palestinian violence in the United States. We've got hundreds and hundreds of terrorized Jewish students on campuses, and we have mobs like this and mobs all over the place. So what does Kamala Harris do? She goes to Dubai to the cop. Don't expect Joe Biden to do anything. The man doesn't know where he is most of the time. I mean, he really is. He's asleep. That's why. He's not demented. He doesn't have dementia. He doesn't have any kind of Alzheimer's. He's just infirm, and he's asleep most of the time. And he doesn't leave the beltway very often. So Kamala Harris does the heavy lifting. Kamala Harris was in Dubai yesterday. Here's what she's talking about. She's not talking about anti-Semitism in America and the need to stand with Israel. She's laying on pressure on Israel. This is just a word salad to end all word salads. Kamala Harris at COP28, cut number 22. So I'm not going to reveal the, the details of the conversation, but I did speak with the Amir, and the um, work and their commitment to this work is ongoing, as is ours, and um, our work is ongoing to support some ability to reopen the pause um, and, and to, to have a deal going forward where there will be a pause so that we can get hostages out and get aid in. I don't believe that she is doing any work at all. If she talked to the emir, he was putting his hand over the phone and laughing as the people around the room on the speakerphone said she said what? Uh, She's an embarrassment. And you know it, and I know it. And if you vote for Joe Biden in a year, you're electing her president, and that's a nightmare. Uh, Cut number 23, the vice president. Well, as I said, we have to revitalize the Palestinian Authority, which means giving the support that is necessary for good governance, um, understanding that on the issues that must be resolved as we think of a plan for the day after, it is about good governance, which will bring transparency and accountability to the people of Gaza and the West Bank. Um, It's also about what we need to do to recognize there must be some plan for security for the region, and I suspect as a a plan develops, it will take into account interim and then longer term. And Listen fine. to her talk is like playing shoots and ladders. I do that with my grandkids. If you, if you, if you t- 
touch on a subject, she goes down the chute to some reservoir of cliche that she's stored up in a cistern of of idiocies, and she trundles it out. I would love if someone were to say, well, who's running the Palestinian Authority? And she's going to say Abbas. And he says, how old is he? 84. When was he elected? Well, he was serving his 17th year of his four-year term. And who's below him? I don't know. She doesn't know. Nobody knows who's going to win. Uh, nobody, the power struggle, because it won't be an election to succeed the ancient Abbas. By the way, Madam Vice President, after the Oslo Accords, you know what those are? Do you know when they were signed? Do you know when they were implemented? Have they been implemented? Has the Palestinian Authority changed its charter? Has it stopped teaching Jew hatred in its schools in the West Bank? Why would you trust the Palestinian Authority in Gaza? Do you think we have to destroy Hamas? It is truly an astonishing display of idiocy across this administration as they do not know what to do. They do not have any idea what to do. Not only do we have that word set, let me bring you up today on the news first. Um, Israel has expanded its offensive into southern Gaza along uh, a pretty broad front, and they have published detailed maps on where Palestinians can move to to stay out of harm's way, but they're going to blow up all the tunnels. Understand, they're not leaving anytime soon, and there's not going to be a pause anytime soon. All the kids are out. Most of the women are out, except the women who are IDF age or IDF veterans, and say a prayer for them because the horrific stories that have emerged about the treatment of the hostages at the hands of these terrorists is pretty bad. But the children are out. And say a prayer for everyone else, because Israel's not going to pause again. They pulled all their negotiators out. All Hamas can do now is surrender or they're going to die. And Israel's not going anywhere, and we're not going to make them go anywhere. Tom Friedman wrote like 3,000, 400,000 words yesterday, then ended up with a cliche from Chinatown. All right, it's it's the Middle East, Jake. And it's, not, it's some stupid, I read the whole thing and my head hurt. Because Thomas Friedman is 70 years old, and he's using a cliche from a 50-year-old movie and telling us what the Israelis should be doing in the Israeli government. It's the most astonishing display of ignorance I have seen in a major newspaper and of a lack of humility and of hubris. And it infects everybody on the Democratic side. They are all stuck in a Oslo time warp that briefly opened up, and they thought at Y River Bill Clinton was going to pull it off. But Arafat didn't want to deal. Abbas doesn't want to deal. And Hamas Sinwar is out there. He just wants to kill Jews. It's just the West versus the anti-West now. They're in the only frame. You can't use oppressor oppressed. You can't use the poor Palestinians versus the mighty Jewish IDF. You have to use it's the West versus the anti-West. Which side are you on? Are you with the Chinese Communist Party and Xi, Putin and the nuts who run Iran and all the proxies of all three, or are you with the West? All right. And that applies to Ukraine. It applies to Taiwan. It most certainly applies to Israel and its war on Gaza. And I don't want to hear you give me a lecture about what Israel is doing wrong unless you've watched the 45 minute video. Now, I have not watched the video because I know which side I'm on. I know which side this audience is on. We are on the side of a free people maintaining their freedom in a legitimate state enacted by the United Nations in 1948, attacked repeatedly over time, that has repeatedly done nothing but seek peace, but will also kill you if you kill their people. And we are coming only two months after the worst massacre of Jews since 1945. And I don't even think there's anything pre-1938 that comes close. The Nazis get the all-time win in killing Jews, but this October 7th was, is in the silver stand. Now, the 19th, the six years of the Holocaust are six million dead Jews, and this is 1,200 dead Jews on one day. But it's a clip that they would gladly repeat until all nine million Israelis were dead. And the Israelis have figured it out, and they're not leaving Gaza. And we shouldn't ask them to leave Gaza. And they're not going to leave Gaza even if we ask them. So stop asking them. Uh, the Israeli Defense Forces hit 200 sites overnight, the ground offensive is going forward. Palestinians are using the grid that Israel provided to find safe zones in southern Gaza. Benjamin Netanyahu, I'm going to read this to you when I get back, is very explicit. Total victory. Meanwhile, the U.S. is pressing Israel. Lloyd Austin, 
Lloyd Austin, another word salad at the Reagan Defense Forum about you got to minimize civilian casualties, like we did in Mosul. Huh? And the Friedman article, it is really extraordinary how blind Democrats want to be to what is going on. But media, they're just as blind. If they are not covering that mob in Philadelphia last night, they're not the media, or at least they're not 24-7 media. I got a lot coming up today. But when Jews in America can't walk down the street or run a business because they're afraid of anti-Semitic mobs coming and breaking their windows, I don't think they broke the windows last night. I think they just scared everyone away. But if you can't act with security in America, our law enforcement and our governance is falling apart. Good on you, Josh Shapiro. Now do something about it. Go out and arrest, arrest people for assault because the fear of imminent harm is a felony. All right, it's a felony. Go. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. It's fighting words and it's constitutional. Go arrest those people. I'll be right back. Good morning, America. I've got lots of news for you this morning, and I'm beginning to think you're never going to get news about the most important war that has been fought since the defeat of ISIS. Uh, it's actually more important than the Ukraine stalemate. That was important for a time. We are now in a World War I trench warfare operation there. And so focus right now is on the front against the West that has opened up in Israel and the aftermath of the massacre of 10-7. For the first time, I have seen an extensive article, and this is in the Financial Times, a good newspaper. If I had to pick one newspaper to keep, it would be the Financial Times abroad. Uh, just one. I, if I could only afford one, it would be the Financial Times Long story on how difficult it will be to destroy the miles and miles of tunnels. If you have ever been in London and you've been in the underground of London, you will realize the Jubilee line, the Silver Line, the various lines that they've got, that's what Hamas has built over 17 years. It's all got to be destroyed. And there are three levels, according to this article. And there's a level that is booby-trapped. So the Israeli Defense Force are going to have to take their time and move with great care, but with lethal intent, and they may flood them with seawater, they may use a a combination of explosives of gas, they're going to collapse the whole thing. They've got to do that. It took 17 years to build. It'll probably take a year to destroy, and Israel's going to be in Gaza doing that work as long as necessary. But some of the hostages told us they were getting low on food and water and, and oxygen, so a lot of the Hamas terrorists will be forced out. And I'm not saying there won't be another pause to let hostages out when Sinwar, the coward, gets close to uh, dying for asphyxiation. They'll find a way to get the Qataris to try and get in touch with the Israelis who do love their hostages and want to get them back. And they are paying an extraordinary ransom in terrorists who belong in jail. But I'm not sure they'll do it again. Netanyahu, the prime minister, sits in a war cabinet with Defense Minister Gallant and Minister Gantz and two other observers, and he vowed on Saturday night that he's not going to let the Palestinian Authority. By the way, Madam Vice President, go to go back to the United States is basically what Netanyahu said. And she might have been able to hear him. They're not given the PA Gaza because the PA is corrupt and terrorist organization it has not reformed itself in 30 years since Oslo. So they're not getting the PA not getting Gaza. Something else will come in. But he spoke forcefully about the Palestinian Authority. And he then reiterated, they're going to get total victory, and it's not going to change. No matter how much pressure Joe Biden and Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan put on them, and they don't care about, I mean, come on, nobody cares about Kamala Harris. Uh, She becomes president. But 
He said the PA will not return to Gaza on an Israeli tank. He acknowledged that there are differences with the United States, and he appreciates this. But, quote, ultimately, Netanyahu said, this is our war. Ultimately, we have to make the decisions. Ultimately, we do make the decisions. We try and often succeed in convincing our American friends. I hope and believe that that will be the case in the future. All right. That's what he said. I want to repeat it. Ultimately, this is our war, Israel's war. Ultimately, we, the Israelis, have to make the decisions. Ultimately, we do make the decisions. We try and often succeed in convincing our American friends. I hope and believe that will be the case in the future. I want to translate for this for you. Stay home, Tony Blinken. Don't threaten us again. We do not take well to your threats. We, are, we lost 1,200 people in one day. That's the equivalent of 40,000 Americans. Right? There are 9 million Israelis. There are 330 million Americans. Uh, the, the, the factor there is, is for the benefit of the Steelers fans, 33 to 34. So you multiply 1,200 times 33, 34. And we're there 55 days after the fact telling them, you know, you, you don't have the credit to do this. I don't know if Blinken will be allowed back in. I suppose they have to let him back in. Meanwhile, you've got crazy Democrats from the left wing out there refusing to recognize that rape was used as a weapon of revenge and terror very effectively. I'm not going to watch those 45 minutes. I'm not. But I, I do see some left wing journalists out there saying, what is wrong with the, the left wing of the American press and the left wing of the American Democratic Party that they can't realize that rape as a weapon has sort of been fundamental to the women's right movement, the rejection of that. Where's the Me Too movement about Me Too Israel? Where is everybody? Uh, they're afraid. A lot of them are afraid. They don't know what to do. They have no idea what to do. And what they ought to do, what I like to do, what you ought to do, is put your Israeli flag on, as you can see it. If you're watching on the Salem News Channel, there's my Star of David flag, my Israeli flag behind me. Put up your flag, start sending the weaponry, be 100% behind them, and say nothing except Israel will win and we support Israel. Israel will win and we support Israel. That's all you need to say. Folks, America's colleges and universities today are less concerned with critical thinking than with indoctrination. No wonder that so many young Americans embrace cancel culture, deny free speech to conservatives, and celebrate, actually celebrate terrorism. But I'm happy to report there is a college where students debate ideas openly and honestly, where they pursue truth together with their professors, and where America's great heritage of liberty is studied and revered. My favorite college, Hillsdale College. As stated in Hillsdale's founding document in 1844, Hillsdale's original mission was to offer the kind of serious liberal arts education needed to preserve the blessings of civil and religious liberty across the land. And this mission continues to guide Hillsdale College today. You can learn more at q4hillsdale.com. That's q4hillsdale.com. There you'll find a short video. It's just over a minute long, showing how Hillsdale's work, not only on its Michigan and Washington, D.C. campuses, but also across the nation, is effective in defending American liberty. Take some time to watch today at q4hillsdale.com. That's hughforhillsdale.com. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Dana Perino, of course, is co-host of America's Newsroom on Fox News. She joins me this morning. Good morning, Dana. How are you? Good morning. I'm wonderful. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for joining me because I thought of all the people on broadcast news, the one who may have the most actual experience with dealing with Israel is you. And I wanted to go back and set the table by reminding people you were the 26th press secretary of the United States for President George W. Bush. Before that, you were deputy press secretary. How often did you get to go with the, the former president to Israel, Dana? I went twice, actually, and we went to, twice in one year or in a calendar year. Um, if you can go back in time, you'll remember this, but just for your listeners um, who might not exactly remember. So Prime Minister Ulmer was the prime minister at the time. And I know this seems like a fantasy right now, but put yourself back in those times. There was a slight chance, a possibility of an agreement on a two-state solution at the time between Prime Minister Ulmert and uh, Abbas, the president of uh, the Palestinian Authority. And it was really, uh, I, 
As, 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 you know what, Hugh, I'm saying this out loud, and I'm thinking everyone's going to say that is impossible. There was never going to be a two-state solution. But at the time, that was the, the deal. And so it was a possibility. The president went there to encourage and to listen. But also he was there because there were a lot of things going on in the region. And I was there in that last year, and President Bush took very seriously his responsibility to hand off to President Obama the best situation he possibly could across the board. But terrorism and terrorist attacks was very much on his mind at the time. And of course, Israel has been such an incredible partner for the Western world in order to help share intelligence to help prevent terrorist attacks. After October 7th, we know that doesn't always work. But it was I think we should even go back further in time, Dana Perino, to after 9-11, President Bush attempted to do a deal with um, Arafat. Arafat would subsequently yeah. die, but but Arafat lied to him, and I believe W then said, "I'm not dealing with that guy ever again." Have I got that correct from my memory? You are correct. And so after Arafat died, President Bush attempted to do a deal with Abbas before Hamas took over the Gaza. There was that brief moment in time. Israel's always been willing to go. And how optimistic was it on Air Force One that the two-state solution could actually happen? I would say just mildly optimistic, because one of the things that was happening at the time was Ulmer's government was very, um, I would say, unstable. There was always a threat of a new election being called because the coalition government was having a difficult time working together. I'll tell you my favorite story, though, of that time, and it was about leadership. So we had heard, or I should say the president had heard, and then I was privy to, that there was one person on the cabinet who was very much against any deal that Olmert was going to make. And the president was invited to a dinner. We were all sitting there together. We're all eating dinner. And, you know, he didn't like to waste time or an idle chit chat. So he just puts it out on the table and says, I understand that some of you here are against a deal. And I just want to step back. And let me ask you, how did you come to Israel? I'd love to know your story. What are your family history? How did you get here? And I remember the chief of staff for Omer looking at, for permission to speak. And he says, yes. Yeah. So he starts and he says, well, my family came from Iraq. And it was 1936, I think he said. And then the next one was Poland. The next one's Ukraine. Down at the other end of the table, another Israeli cabinet member leaned forward and said, wait, your dad came in po- from Poland in that year? That was when my dad came. And they had all these little small world connections as they do this for about half an hour. And it was very beautiful. And they had these moments where of unity. And the president said, I had a feeling you all had forgotten why you were here in the first place. And he huh. stood up and we left. Huh. And well, it was a, a, he was a great diplomat. Try to get them to talk to each other. A lot of people underestimate how much the former president invested of his personal time in getting leaders to try and lead. Uh, I don't have anything like your experience, Dan, but but he would invite talk show hosts in to meet with him occasionally. Maybe you were part of the reason that yep. that happened. Mm-hmm. One time we came in, we were late. We kept us waiting for a half hour. Of course, you wait for the president. He apologized, which, of course, he doesn't have to do. But he had been on the phone with then Iraqi Prime Minister uh, Maliki, I think. Yep. And yep. yeah, and had gone longer. And he began by saying, you know, it's my job to try and teach these people in new democracies, how to lead. And so I'm sorry that we went on with the meeting, but he invested a lot of time in it. But he, the point is that both Sharon and then Omert and then before them, uh, Barack tried to get a two-state solution going at Y River with President Clinton. Then W tried to do it. Secretary Rice tried to do it. They tried again and again and again. And it doesn't work because the Palestinians never want the deal. At least that's my understanding of it. What's your understanding of it? I think that is absolutely true. And I, it's one of the reasons I feel so strongly about the coverage that we're doing here and the coverage that you're doing. I know that you and I follow each other on Twitter. We don't get a chance to talk all the time, but we have similar thinking about this moment for Israel is about their survival, the survival of the state of Israel. And you just have to look at what Shinwar, the head of Hamas, said over the weekend. He said, Oh, you think October 7th was bad? He said, we'll keep doing it. We'll do it over and over and over again. And that is why Israel is determined to destroy Hamas. Hamas can never be, uh, be allowed to continue. And yet, Hugh, I'm worried because I sit there and I read the coverage of what was happening over the weekend and the message that Kamala Harris was delivering. 
and I'm worried about America's position here. Let me, if I can, I want to play for the audience who may just be tuning in what the vice president said at COP28 in Dubai. Cut number 22. This is Vice President Harris yesterday, I believe. So I'm not going to reveal the the details of the conversation, but I did speak with the emir and the um, work and their commitment to this work is ongoing, as is ours. And um, our work is ongoing to support some ability to reopen the pause um, and and to to have a deal going forward where there will be a pause so that we can get hostages out and get aid in. Now, uh, Dana, let me begin by saying there are two kinds of vice presidents, those that matter and those that don't. Vice President Cheney mattered a lot. And if he was giving a press conference, people would lean in and listen very closely. Am I right about that? One hundred percent. And then there are vice presidents who don't matter at all. And that's Vice President Harris. And when she says she's talking to the emir, do you think the emir was leaning in and really giving close attention to what she had to say? I do, because I think that the vice president would never have said that on her own if she hadn't been encouraged to by either the president himself or the national security advisor. Uh, And I think that she does want to separate herself from Biden a little bit in terms of Biden having been pretty strongly supportive of Israel and the backlash that he's seen within his own party, especially on the progressive wing, I think she wants to try to distance from that a little bit. So if they encouraged her to say that out loud, I think she would have no problem saying that. Also, last week, she was asked at the DealBook conference, what do you think about, do you think Israel is obeying the rules of war? And her answer wasn't yes, as it should have been, in my opinion. It was, well, there are many rules of war. Oh, I miss that. I don't like the, <laughs> the shakiness there at all. I, I miss that. I got to play for you the second quote from the vice president from yesterday, because this one's even worse. Cut number 23. Well, as I said, they, we have to revitalize the Palestinian Authority, which means giving the support that is necessary for good governance. Um, understanding that on the issues that must be resolved as we think of a plan for the day after, it is about good governance, which will bring transparency and accountability to the people of Gaza and the West Bank. Um, It's also about what we need to do to recognize there must be some plan for security for the region, and I suspect as a a plan develops, it will take into account interim and then longer term. And finally, what we must do in terms of rebuilding – uh, Gaza and a commitment to that. So, Dana Perino, what do you think that means? Well, I think that it means something along the lines of what Antony Blinken said in Israel last week, which is that the Biden administration does not believe Israel has the credit, that's their word, credit, in the geopolitical bank in order to do what it says it wants to do and needs to do, which is to eliminate Hamas. And it also means that she is going to be looking for regional actors to try to pitch in on some sort of aid package for Gaza. While Israel continues to sit there and say, we, we have suffered the worst terrorist attack in our country's existence. We have to figure out how to protect ourselves immediately. And they need America's help. But I think my take on this, Hugh, is that they're moving forward. And they are trying to protect civilians. We know that. They are obeying the rules of war. No one else is. And she didn't ask anybody in the region to condemn what Hamas did. And the regional actors, they could have helped Gaza in the last 15 years, did they? No. So I think there's a lot of, hmm, um, maybe, I, I don't want to say backsliding on the Biden administration because we haven't heard from the president, but in my experience, she never would have said that if she hadn't had the, didn't have the okay from the president himself. I'm going to come to Lloyd Austin in just a second, but um, I, I like enlisting the vice president to playing shoots and ladders. And whenever she gets asked a question, she goes down a chute to an <laughs> old collection of canards and cliches that she used to, two-state solution, Palestinian authority, and that if you pushed her, she wouldn't even be able to give you the list of prime ministers of Israel, much less their positions or the when the withdrawal of Gaza occurred and how often they've offered and been told no. She wouldn't know what Y River is. I just don't think she knows anything, Dana. And maybe I'm being ungenerous, but I, I have a pretty good nose for people who know what they're talking about. 
I don't think she knows what she's talking about. You know, I would say, like, even for for me, when I first started in the Bush administration, was actually at the Justice Department after 9-11. And I had to, I had so much to learn, Hugh. And it takes a lot of time. And I, thankfully, I had wonderful people around me, like Steve Hadley, who guided me and helped me understand all sorts of these all of the geopolitical issues that we're talking about today, I really learned about back then. And it was a, quite an investment of time and time that I needed to spend. I didn't learn enough in my university days about it. And part of this is learned experience. But imagine you're the vice president of the United States. And every single day you could call anybody in the government and have them come and give you a briefing on something because they're the experts. 43 used to do that all the time. He would just randomly say, could I get a briefing next week on what's happening in, you know, in Haiti? And sure enough, here they would come, and he would just always be curious, and I don't see that with her. I have a ton of curiosity every day I wake up, and I think I know less than the day before, so I feel like I'm always trying to catch up. Like, I'm trying to walk up that chute that she falls down when she answers a question. Yeah, this is why I listen to Dan Senor. I have five <laughs> podcasts I've started to listen to. Dan Senor, who I did not know much about, and you, you had to work with him when he was spokesperson oh, yes, for the Provisional yes. Authority. He's favorites. really smart. Mm. And one and of the best communicators of our time, I think. I, I think his podcast is unique. He doesn't have to do this business because he's busy being an investment guy. But when he sits down with Aviv Reddick Gur of the Times of Israel, I think that's the most important hour I get a week, and it comes out every Monday. I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to that yet. I listened Aviv, to about 40 minutes this morning before I came, came to work. Uh, you're, you're ahead of me then. Because Aviv, isn't he amazing? I've never heard of him until the last two months. Well, I started listening to the Dancing or Call Me Back podcast several months ago, and I loved it because he would do one week of politics and the next week on foreign policy. And another person I would encourage everyone to follow, and I'm sure you do too, is a guest he had on named Richard Goldberg. And oh, I don't. I, I miss that. Oh, yeah, Richard Goldberg. We all work hold, together in the Bush administration. He's great. Hold that through the break. I'm going to come back. I'm going to talk with Dana off the air, then come back with one more segment. She's being very generous with her time because we both believe that America's got to get smart about this. Israel's going to be in Gaza for months and months and months until the tunnels are destroyed and security is restored. And people have to start to prepare for that. And we've got anti-Semitism in Philadelphia. Lots to talk about with Dana Perino. Stay tuned. I'm back now with Dana Perino. This will air on my podcast, and I'll return to the on-air broadcast in just a minute. Dana, you're very generous towards successors as press secretary. I think probably you inherit that from former President Bush, yes. the same attitude. He never speaks ill. I don't want you to speak ill of Corrine Jean-Pierre. I just want to know if your deputy took the hard shots and the hard slots in the way that Admiral Kirby is doing it for Corrine Jean-Pierre. They don't put her out in harm's way right now. Why is that? You know, um, John Kirby is, a very, is an excellent communicator. Yes. And I think that they're using their best tools. One of the things that a press secretary can do is say, look, I don't have all the answers, but I'll get you somebody who, can, who does. And so in some ways, perhaps, she is saying, let me do the smart thing here and get him to do the briefing on these particular topics because perhaps she knows that there, there's a limitation there or that it's extremely frustrating for the people in the briefing room and those listening. The other thing is, Hugh, that I was never more recognized when, except for when I traveled as press secretary to South Korea and Israel. Why? Well, these are there were two states that were very concerned about their safety, South Korea because of the north and Israel because of the region and the concerns there. Because our allies listen to everything the White House says. So the press secretary briefing is very important. So I think that's one of the reasons they put John Kirby in there. I think that she would perhaps be better served by having a little bit more time with President Biden. I don't think she has a lot of it. I don't think he spends a lot of time with those people so that they're always sort of not quite sure what to say because you don't have time with him, so you don't know what to say. You know, I, I do want to pause on Admiral Kirby is extremely well prepared, mm -hmm. and he is also by far the toughest on Hamas of all their spokespeople and of all their officials. I think he's got clarity that everybody else lacks. Have you noticed that? Yes, I believe he is a personally principled person. I also think that he and his deputy, Sabrina Singh at the Pentagon, continually have to figure out a way to get the administration back to where they need to be after the progressive left leaks something or says something that makes it look like the Biden administration is moving away from Israel. 
but I, but I believe that Admiral Kirby is determined to show there is no daylight between the United States and Israel. He would be better served if the vice president uh, agreed with him. And I don't huh. know if that's the case. I, I don't think the secretary of defense agrees with him. When we come back live on the radio, we'll talk about Secretary Austin. But I just don't recall a moment during eight years of President Bush when his press office was divided against itself. I, I just, I just no. don't. And, and never, that never, ever happened. I would, but I will tell you, one thing I really hated to do was brief about the budget. So <laughs> in the weeks leading up to the budget, I would always start asking around, like, who would like to brief the White House for? <laughs> and, you know, they love to do it. So I would make sure I would have somebody. Like, I remember Rob Portman did it for me a couple times, and I was so happy. <laughs> we come right back. We're going to talk about Secretary Austin. Stay by, stand by, America, on the podcast. Dana Perino is coming back on the broadcast right after this. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt, Dana Perino, of course, co-host of America's Newsroom. She's about to go off and be on the air. I really appreciate the time, Dana. You bet. I want to do two more things. First, in the Bush years, you had two national security advisors, future Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, and you mentioned uh, Mr. Hadley early, Stephen Hadley. I never saw Stephen Hadley that I can recall give a briefing. I don't believe I saw a lot of Secretary Rice before she was Secretary Rice. We've seen a lot of Jake Sullivan. Do you think that's different from when you were there? It, it was a very rare occasion when we had the National Security Advisor brief the press. Often it would be right before a foreign trip so that the National Security Advisor could say, this is where we're going, this is what we want to accomplish, and he would take some questions or, or she would. It, it was rare. And I understand, though, why they would want to have Admiral Kirby there. There was a lot of question about whether they would – whether Biden wanted to make him press secretary initially, right? Yes. Um, instead, they decided to go with Corinne Jean-Pierre. I think she's smart to lean on Kirby because he's got the knowledge and the experience. And I would say we're all better off for having him there because he's very principled. He seems to believe in his gut about what's right and wrong in this. You remember you saw the leaked commentary from President Bush when he was given a private event a few weeks ago. And it was right after October 7th, and he said, there's a guilty party here, and it isn't Israel. And it's and 12, me, uh, you know, I, I applauded President Biden going to Israel. It was mm -hmm. like when President Bush showed up in Iraq on the first Thanksgiving that he did it. Mm -hmm. It's very important to do it. But I am very dumbfounded by Secretary Austin at the Reagan Defense Forum over the weekend, Dana. I don't know if you're going to cover that today. But it seems to me, Secretary Blinken, Secretary Austin, the vice president, everybody is putting pressure on Israel. And it's been two months since 1,200 Israelis were massacred and 240 kidnapped. And we have eight Americans held hostage and no one knows their names. Are you astonished by this as I am? I'm upset by it, like actually really upset. And I, I'm pretty even keeled, but this makes me extremely angry and nervous. I will tell you this. I don't think that that happened by accident. I think all of the administration people that came out this weekend to pressure Israel did it on purpose. And if it's not coming from the commander in chief, that would one be a concern. But I believe the administration is figuring out a way to try to tap the brakes here. And the only reason we got to a hostage release is because the Israeli military put so much pressure on Hamas that they basically cried uncle and said, we need a few days. Okay, my last question, Dana. Last night, there was a mob outside of a Jewish deli, or at least a deli owned by a Jewish American who might also be an Israeli American, uh, at, at called Goldie's. And the mob was 100 strong, and it was very threatening. Governor Shapiro, Democrat, has denounced it. Uh, uh, Dave McCormick, who will be the next senator from Pennsylvania if things go well, denounced it. I have not seen anything from the White House. What would W have done if an anti-Semitic mob showed up in the streets of Philadelphia uh, intimidating, harassing, and threatening a Jewish American citizen. You know, it's, it's so shocking that you think, well, I can't imagine that we have gotten to this place. I don't exactly know what President Bush would have done, but he would have been in touch with the governor indeed. And the other thing is, though, he, last night they decided not to do a menorah lighting. I believe it was in Richmond, Virginia, because it might upset some people. Yes. Right? So and when I talked to Dan Senor on the podcast I do, one of the things that shocked me was when he said, for the first time in my life, I feel vulnerable. I don't want my friends. I don't want any Jews to feel that way. I don't want any Muslims to feel that way. Uh, but I don't think that the White House's anti-Semitism movement is actually bearing any fruit, and they need to 
do something more to do that. Let's close by reminding people, Richard Goldberg's pot. I have not heard of it, so I want to know about it. What's the name of it? Uh, the, the Richard Goldberg is a part of the Foundations for the Defense of Democracy, FDD. You can find him there. He is an incredible person, but he was a guest on the Dan Senor podcast okay. several months ago talking about how the administration was trying to do another deal with Iran, and that really got my attention. So I started following Rich Goldberg, and he's a wonderful follow on X, formerly known as Twitter, and somebody who Dan has had on the podcast a lot. And we we wanted to have him last week, but you know, people, it's flu and it's cold and flu season, Hugh. I don't know if yep. you've had guests dropping like flies, but uh, the, the fetching Mrs. Hewitt out. has been completely ill for a week, and all the grandkids are completely ill. So you're right about that. Guests do drop like flies. Dana, you didn't. I appreciate your joining me so much. Off to America's Newsroom with you. The only morning show worth watching. If you've got cable on in your home, go watch Dana and Bill Hemmer. And tell Bill congratulations. The Red Hawks won the MAC. I don't know if you know that, Dana, but you can surprise him by telling him Oh, my him gosh. That. The Red Hawks won the what? The, the Mid-America Conference. Okay. Yeah, they're, they're big. They're very, very proud of that. They had a big celebration in Oxford, Ohio. So you can surprise them when you see them this morning. Dana Perino of America's Newsroom. Thank you so much. Morning, Glory America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. Hugh Hewitt live inside the Beltway. Len Kordakovsky is just back from Israel. The former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State and often a guest on the Hugh Hewitt Show joins me. Good morning, Len. How long were you in Israel and what did you see there? Good morning, here. Thanks again for having me. Um, I actually was in Israel for about a month, and uh, I felt like I needed to go there and I need to experience it for myself. Um, after October 7th, when the Hamas massacre took place, I talked to many uh, in Israel, from uh, government officials, business leaders, military people, uh, just average civilians, and um, I, I was startled by what I heard. Uh, the, the tremor in their voices told me this was something different and I needed to see it and feel it for myself. Uh, Lynn, ought we to try and take the show there? I don't know that it's actually possible, but it, it, I don't know enough people broadcasting from Israel. I don't think Americans understand what Israel is thinking at all. So I'm thinking about taking the radio show there. What do you think? Is that a bad idea or a good idea? That is a great idea here, uh, it, and it's much needed because you're right. Uh, there's the words that are used to describe what happened on October 7th don't do the event justice. Uh, the, the palpable pain that you see from every Israeli and not just Jewish Israelis, Arab Israelis. You know, one of the things that I wanted to make sure when I went to Israel is talk to uh, all Israelis. And I... I uh, uh, as you know, that I, I have an Arab language platform called Yella, and one of the things that I wanted to do is interview Arab Israelis and Arab voices, Muslims, Christians, Druze, uh, all, all uh, people who were on the ground who experienced the event. And for them, just like the Jewish Israelis, there's before October 7th and there's after October 7th. And you don't really understand the nature of what happened unless you go to those towns in the south that were attacked by those um, uh, Iranian-sponsored beasts. And I can, I can only call them beasts because what happened there is indescribable in human terms. You have to go to the homes that were invaded. You have to see, you have to smell the, the char of the uh, buildings of human flesh. Um, uh, you have to hear the stories from people who survived and witnessed what happened. And you have to understand why Israel is intent on doing what it's doing in order to prevent something like this from ever happening again. You know, and I would just say one more thing. This is not just about Israel. For the Jewish people around the world, there's before October 7th and there's after October 7th. Uh, what happened will, uh, will, 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 will has, has had such a profound impact on all of us. Uh, this was the most documented atrocity against the Jewish people since the Holocaust, and the world's response to it is uh, so inversely perverse and inexplicable that uh, for all of us in the Jewish community, um, there, there will never be going back to where, where it was. And for us, never again really does mean never again. Now, Len, I, I'm not Jewish, but I've had the same uh, reaction that, anyone who isn't Jewish can have who can be horrified, which is, 
I can't believe this is happening because I, I know my history and I know about pogroms. I don't think any pogrom that is recorded in history was quite as brutal as those eight hours. I, I, I know about pogroms in Palestine prior to the uh, declaration of the state by the U.N. that occurred that people had to flee Israel. And I know about pogroms in Iraq that sent tens of thousands of Jews to Israel after Israel became a state. But I don't know of a massacre like this. I mean, on this scale, even in the pale uh, in in your mother, Russia, do you did the, did the Cossacks ever take twelve hundred lives in a single eight hour span? Well, you know, uh, for, unfortunately, <laughs> the Jewish people have uh, a lot of experience in atrocities and um, it's hard to measure one atrocity over another atrocity. Um, look, I mean, the, the Nazis shot 30,000 Jews in uh uh, during World War II around Kiev and buried them in Bobby Yar. Uh, I, so, you know, there were quite a few things that have happened to us over uh, the epochs, but uh, none that I lived through, none that any of us, uh, you know, have firsthand experience with other than the, the remaining Holocaust survivors. And, uh, you know, I, I'm thinking of uh, several Holocaust survivors that, uh, including my grandparents, who have fled um, the Soviet Union, who grew up before the Holocaust and survived the Holocaust and survived the communists uh, to come to the United States. And um, I, I have to think of uh, a few homes that I visited where Holocaust survivors were executed in their own homes by these Hamas terrorists. Now, imagine surviving the horrors of the Nazis only to be slaughtered in your own home in the Jewish homeland. I mean, this is the kind of emotional and shocking event that happened. And look, we're, we're talking about nine-month-old babies taken from their mothers, uh, all the way up to 87-year-old uh, uh, people uh, taken from their homes, kept in tunnels, starved, deprived of medicine. We're talking about young Jewish women raped, burned to death, uh, shot as they were being raped. We're, there's only so many words that exist in the English language or in any language that can Len, describe I, what I, happened. And frankly, I, I, I'm now thinking about the Jewish women uh, who are probably wondering, what about us? Don't Jewish women count? Uh, we're going to come to that. We got plenty of time in the world. Yeah. We're going to come to that. But I, I, here's where I'm leading with my question. I know about the Hebron pogrom before the state of Israel existed, where hundreds of Jews were killed and others fled when the local Palestinians decided to try and preempt the creation of the state of Israel. It was unsuccessful, but it was bloody. That's pre-1938. And the period of time, 1938, crystal knock to the uh, liberation of the camps, is the worst ever. But now we have new technology. And if Hamas had had a nuclear weapon, they would have used it. And the reason the pogrom of 10-7 is different from anything we've ever seen before is that the, the methods of modern killing were given to monsters who killed everything with glee. So I think we have to conclude, if Iran can get a dirty bomb made and to Hamas, Hamas will use it. If they can get anything to Hamas, Hamas will use it. And we have to act on that, don't we? I think this is a very uncomfortable question for many people, but I think any reasonable observer of Iran and the Middle East has to understand that Hamas would not have embarked on this attack of this scale and of this nature without the permission, at the very least, the blessing of the Ayatollahs in Iran. Uh, Hamas is a proxy of Iran. Hezbollah, which is to the north of uh, Israel, is a proxy of Iran. Houthis, who are firing rockets at Americans uh, and American ships, are a proxy of Iran. If you're in denial uh, that Iran is behind all of this, then I think you're deluding yourself and we're setting ourselves up for a, uh, um, you know, something, in, you know, inexplicable uh, in terms of uh, the threat to the American people and the people outside of Israel uh, yes, you're right, Hugh. If Iran gets its hands on a nuclear weapon, if Iran can sneak a dirty bomb or, or anything of that nature to one of its proxies, then not only the Israelis are in danger, but Americans are in danger, our Arab neighbors are in danger, the world 
uh, is in danger. And the question that needs to be uh, asked now, because um, you know all roads lead to Tehran, is at what point do we act against the head of the octopus? And I know it's uncomfortable for the Biden administration to ask, to ask this question because um, they've reversed all the policies that have deterred Iran. But that question needs to be asked, not for the Israelis or any of our uh, friends anywhere else, but for the security of the American people. So, Len, I, I would like to ask, can you stay a second segment? Can you stay through the break and then talk to me on the other side? Of course. Because I want to ask you, um, how long you expect the Israelis to stay there? I expect them to stay until everyone from Hamas is dead and all the tunnels are destroyed. But I want to hear from you. And then I want your explanation for the inexplicable comments of Secretary Blinken about Israel not having enough credit, like we have a bank account with Israel or something, and the vice president and the secretary of defense, all three of them three days in a row saying extraordinarily appeasement oriented statements. I want to know what you think about those and what the Israelis you spent a couple of uh, 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 many weeks. How long were you in Israel for, Len? A month. A month. When we come back from break, Len's going to fill us in on that. How long is the offense? How long will it take to destroy Hamas? It is possible. Just how long will it take? And then what does he make of what the messaging of Secretary Blinken, Vice President Harris and Secretary Austin were over the past four days? Because it's inexplicable except as appeasement, as cowardly, as surrender monkeys. Call it what you want. That's what Team Biden is doing. I'll be back with Len Kordakovsky right after this. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Len Kordakovsky, former Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Trump administration of state, is back with me. Len, as I went to break, I know the Simpson fans are going to be mad with me because I didn't use the term of art completely. It is cheese-eating surrender monkeys, and it's usually applied to the French, and it has been in the Simpsons since, I think, 1995. The French are doing it again. Macron is out there criticizing Israel. Everyone is, but I'm most concerned about our own vice president, our own Secretary of State, and our own Secretary of Defense. What do you think they're doing? Wow. Um, well, I can tell you what uh, the people in Israel are feeling. And uh, I, I have to go back. Uh, and they were actually genuinely touched by President Biden's initial remarks after October 7th. But, uh, you know, Secretary Blinken's uh, incessant trips to the region to lecture the Israelis of how to conduct uh, a humane war. Now, the Israeli military and the Israeli government is no less humane than the American government. And imagine if after 9-11, uh, uh, some foreign leader came to the United States to lecture us uh, how to be nice to the people who slaughtered our Americans. I mean, this is what it sounds like to Israelis. It's just incomprehensible. And frankly, it's offensive. Uh, so, uh, uh, this administration has, um, you know, been incoherent in its foreign policy. It has, on one hand, condemned the, uh, you know, let, let's even go back to Ukraine. <laughs> you know, it's it's uh, uh, enabled uh, Putin to invade Ukraine and then complained about Putin invading Ukraine. It has uh, enabled Iran to fund, train, and arm Hamas and Hezbollah and the Houthis. And then it complains about him, uh, you know, them using the funds to uh, to threaten our allies. So I, the, the whole the whole uh, foreign policy of this administration is inexplicable uh, to the Israelis more and more with every lecture. Uh, it's wearing thin. Now, look, for political reasons, the Israeli government and Israelis won't tell you this because the United States is uh, and the United States government is playing a big role in uh, in, in resupplying Israel for what it needs to do, as we should be doing. Uh, and uh, America is still Israel's closest friend. So there's only so much that uh, Israeli officials will say publicly. But, hey, I'm not an Israeli official. I'm not part of the Biden administration. So I can tell you that those lectures are ridiculous. They sound ridiculous. They sound offensive to average people. And at, at a certain point, you're going to see the Israeli officials say, well, thank you for coming. Thank you for your opinion. We appreciate your help. But we're going to do what we have to do to save our country, because for Israel, this is an existential threat. So no lecture about 
um, you know, being more humanitarian than the Pope is going to prevent Israel from protecting its citizens. You know, Len, when we need the aircraft carriers there in America's national interest, but the Israelis need them there to deter Hezbollah for as long as they need to be deterred until they can turn their attention to Hezbollah in Iran. So I understand why they're being diplomatic. But last night, Prime Minister Netanyahu gave a press conference in which he said Israel will make its own decisions about what is in the best interest of Israel. And I fully expect him to follow through and, and the war cabinet of Gantz and Gallant to support him. Based on that exchange, I think Israel's going to be in Gaza for years, but I think this offensive is going to go on for months, maybe six or eight, because it's going to take a long time to destroy what is, in essence, the underground in London. How long do you think they're going to be there in force? I think they have to be there for a while, Hugh. Uh, there's no uh, transitional government that is ready to take place of Hamas. Uh, the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank is just as corrupt and just as vicious. You know, they they pay the, uh, the, the quote-unquote martyrs who have invaded Israel on October 7th and slaughtered babies, women, children, the elderly, the PA is paying them. So uh, absent the Israeli military uh, uh, threat uh, uh, on the West Bank, the PA would be Hamas. So uh, beyond that, the PA is corrupt and, in, and incompetent. The Palestinians know that, the Israelis know that. They cannot govern Gaza. They cannot be as I've heard in the last week or so, the, the possibility of installing Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinian Authority into Gaza. I mean, they, they took Gaza over in 2005, and Hamas took it from them in 2007. So, uh, unfortunately, they're not a credible replacement for Hamas. There is no clear plan for the day after, which means the Israeli military is going to have to stay there long enough to ensure that Hamas and whatever its remnants uh, evolve into uh, can no longer threaten Israelis living in the south. Because right now, those Israeli towns that were invaded on October 7th have been evacuated. The towns in the north that are um, you know, at the Lebanon border have been evacuated because of the threat from Hezbollah. It is inconceivable that Israel is going to live with the reality that they cannot resettle parts of Israel because of this ongoing threat from this monster. Iranian terrorists. We've we got to so go to a break. going to happen. If you can stay, one more segment, I would appreciate it. Len Kordakovsky, just back from Israel, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State. Message from Len on X, the site formerly known as Twitter. I'm going to find out about his Arabic language website, which I didn't know about till this morning. And we're going to talk about American politics in the aftermath of 10-7. I think it's a realigning event. We'll find out if Len agrees. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. I'm back live inside the Beltway with Len Kordakovsky, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Trump administration. He's just returned from a month in Israel. Len, you're a man of letters. Is it wrong to use the phrase insipid vacuity? Because I want to describe the Tom Friedman <laughs> column yesterday. And I, is it redundant to say insipid vacuity? Well, first of all, Hugh, you're giving me too much credit. I, I am an immigrant. I came here from the Soviet Union and English is my second language. So sounds right to me, whatever it means. Well, it's about Thomas Friedman's column yesterday telling Israel what it should do. A 70-year-old columnist ends using a quote from a 50-year-old movie, Chinatown. It's the Middle East, Jake. I just think to myself, where do Americans get off? And I wonder, did, did the average Israeli in the street, or in case of Tom Friedman, an Israeli cab driver, did anyone say to you, where do you Americans get off telling us how to respond to this? No, uh, I, I didn't hear that because the Israelis are too busy fighting for their life. Um, most of the conversations there uh, are about, uh, well, you know, uh, Hamas, of course, but more, uh, even, even more pressing and more... Um, uh, uh, touching, you know, is is the situation of the hostages that Hamas took. Uh, the uh, 240 or so Jewish, uh, not just Jewish, actually, uh, hostages from various nations, most of them Jewish, 
uh, were uh, grabbed from Israel and taken to Gaza into those tunnels and God knows where else. And so those hostages are on the minds of uh, all Israelis, uh, Jewish and non-Jewish. And uh, it's great that about 100 of them have been returned. But uh, every time I see the pictures of those kids coming back and the women coming back from those tunnels uh, to the cheers of, uh, of people celebrating what just happened, I mean, we have to ask ourselves, what are these children, what are these women, what are these old people doing in the tunnels of Gaza? You know, let, let's just, where is our moral clarity? And uh, that is what's on the mind of the Israelis. And frankly, you know, what Americans say or do is far, far distant on that list. Uh, but at the same time, look, Americans know, uh, or, or I'm sorry, Israelis know that the American people are with them, and that's very, very heartening. And it gives them strength, and it definitely helps them because not too many countries have expressed support uh, and, or, or do so on a regular basis. Uh, the United States still stands by Israel diplomatically, militarily, uh, and uh, in, in so many humanitarian uh, ways. So the Israelis know the Americans are their friends. Uh, we just need uh, to be very sensitive friends at this point in time. And not everything is about us. Right now, Israelis are hurting. We need to offer them comfort. We need to offer our support. We need to back up our words with actions, and we need to shut the hell up and make sure that they have what they need to save their country from Iranian terrorists that are hell-bent on destroying it. There's no talk of a two-state solution. Uh, only one side is talking about two states. You can't have a conversation about two states, for example, where only one side is willing to compromise. So that conversation is, is take, has, has been shelved and the Israelis' priorities are now, just like in any crisis, we're going to deal with a crisis right, right in front of us. We're going to make sure our people are safe. And then we're going to worry about uh, feelings of our friends somewhere 6,000 miles away. Leonard, you, you just remind me, Len Kordakovsky. Uh, in 1996, I did a series for PBS, and I interviewed the late Rabbi Harold Kushner, uh, author of When Good Things Happen to Bad, uh, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And he said the number one rule, show up and shut up. Friends should show up and shut up. They shouldn't offer advice. They shouldn't compare the situation to their own situation. Show up and shut up and do what you can. It's the perfect advice. Now I want to dial into American politics. Last night, we had a basically non-lethal pogrom in Philadelphia. Hundreds of people turning out in a mob outside of a Jewish delicatessen owned by a Jewish American who I think might have dual citizenship with Israel it is just the latest in a series of mass mob actions that have made many Jewish Americans afraid from the campus of Harvard to the campus of the University of California at San Diego. You're a Jewish American. What do you expect the president to do right now about this? Well, uh, this, uh, as I mentioned earlier, this does not feel like just an assault on Israel. This feels like an assault on all <clears throat> Jewish people in the United States and around the world. Uh, uh, we, you know, the, the, I can tell you from personal experience, um, I have two daughters in the university here uh, in New Jersey. Uh, what they have to put up with on a daily basis to be told not to go to certain places because they, their presence might provoke uh, these hordes. Uh, uh, I, you know, outside of my own home, I have uh, an American flag as any self-respecting American should. And after October 7th, we put up an Israeli flag in solidarity with the people of Israel. Promptly, that flag was torn down. Fortunately, our ring camera caught the punk with a keffiyeh on his head who tore that flag down. So that is how Jews feel right now. And we're, we're very far away from what George Washington described as living in peace under the, the tree uh, in his letter to the Hebrew congregation. Now... That is how we feel. Uh, to deny Jews their right to feel under assault is, um, you know, is I, I would say, you know, it doesn't feel American to me. Uh, we are always on the front lines of commiserating with other people's pain. And when other um, communities are feeling pain, Jews are always front and center and supporting them. It just feels pretty lonely right now. Uh, when the Jewish people under assault 
when our men, young men and women on campus are under constant assault, when showing up on a street wearing a sign of being Jewish, whether it's a yarmulke or a Star of David, feels like you're putting your life in danger. Uh, and, and owning a Jewish-owned business uh, is an act of courage. Now, that is not America, and that is certainly not the America that my parents and I and my grandparents came to in the early 80s when Reagan talked about the shining city up the, on the hill. And we better do something about it because Jews are always the canary in a coal mine. First it's us, then it's everybody else. So I'm going to conclude this way, Len. I agree with you, and I think the president ought to be speaking about this. And I think the governor of Pennsylvania, who spoke very sharply, and I like Josh Shapiro a lot, I think he needs to send National Guard to Philadelphia, and they need to begin to arrest people who are violating the, the law against assault. Assault and battery. Battery requires a touching. Assault just requires a credible threat. It needs to be enforced. Fighting words are not protected under the Constitution. But I want to end with a political question, because I listened to Mike Murphy talking to Dan Senor yesterday, and, and I objected, uh, because they thought this was just not a big political event, or they, I, they didn't talk about it like I would talk. I think it's a realigning moment in America. And I don't care if it's former President Trump as the nominee, or if it's uh, Ron DeSantis or Nikki. I think a lot of people are going are gonna to leave the Democrats over this, because they are failing to stand up for American basic values of toleration and defense of all people. Do you agree with me on that, Len? I don't know, Hugh. Uh, I've watched many elections. Uh, I've watched uh, and, you know, I am a minority in the Jewish community, uh, which votes with Democrats, mm -hmm. you know, 70 to 75 percent of the time. Um, so it's uh, the Jewish community voted for President Obama, who was the most anti-Jewish president that I can remember. Uh, now, remember, many of the people in the Biden administration are Obama people and their policies are Obama's policies. So it's hard for me to predict what the Jewish uh, community is going to do here in the United States. I, I hope we wake up. I hope we see the Hamas lobby in Congress, the, or, or as uh, I've called them, the Hamas caucus, led by Rashida Tlaib and Ilan Omar and uh, their ilk, who are unabashedly uh, anti-Semitic. I hope that uh, Jewish Democrats will finally um, see the events of October 7th as a watershed moment and, um, and, and make the Democrat Party pay a price, political price, uh, for the kind of toxic uh, inst instigation that has, been, uh, that, that has emanated from their leadership. Um, I, I, I hope so. I hope so, because um, I, I, I see the Democratic Party going in a really wrong direction uh, for a long time. Uh, and it doesn't just start with this event. It started uh, long before, even long before Obama. Uh, and it's, it's disturbing. Uh, and I think the Jewish Democrats uh, have to realize and see it for what it is. I hope uh, you're right, Len. The, the, bi the bipartisan consensus that's existed in America uh, in reference to Israel and uh, certainly Jewish Americans is, is not there anymore. I hope that you are right and that people wake up. Len, we are out of time. Thank you for joining. Keep coming back. Message from Len on X. Go and follow him. And it's very vital that you do that. Thank you, Len Kordakovsky.